Podcast. This is John. This is Trav. This is Rich. Welcome to the Tri Tac Games Podcast. Your podcast of seeing the end, or is it just a new beginning? This week we are talking about Fringeworthy and specifically about Portals 4, a new edition of Portals, which are the uh, well, it's 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 it used to be a very specific layout of the fringe pass system uh, where each node had its own page but Richard in uh, portals 3 uh, decided to go a different direction and it's now more of an adventurer's log uh, plus additional information it still does have things like layouts of the various primes alternates on the these particular nodes however they're no longer fixed in a location, and uh, it has a lot of flavor text uh, that has to do with the person or persons that are being used as a, a kind of a mouthpiece for to enlighten or illuminate uh, what is on these particular nodes. It just came out this year. Uh, it's from TriTech Games, of course. Uh, Richard, why don't you uh, give us a little uh, description of, of your product? Portals 4 came out officially at Origins. We released it there. It's doing pretty good. People are picking it up and scratching their heads because it is a an end, a beginning, or it just keeps going. A little hard to describe because of the choices you make in the game. There are multiple scenarios in the game. Characters, new characters, uh, new aliens and an awful lot of information on the Tremolin, which I think would surprise some people, who have been kind of curious as to what's been going on with Fringeworthy and what direction it was heading. And uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions you need. Okay. Everybody here has, of course, uh, studied this, uh, certainly not to the extent in which Richard has, as he wrote it. For three years. Yeah. Well, looking this over, um, I see primarily what we have here are uh, three major pieces to this particular thing. There is more information than that, but the three major things that I see in this particular uh, uh, supplement, and of course, and and two of them are actually connected to each other, uh, but what it is is that uh, there is the discovery of a new race um, that is on the Tazeel homeworld and who seem to have some deep connections to the history of the Fringe Paths. There is also the discovery of 
um, a uh, strong uh, opposition to IDET, uh, known as the Coptics. Uh, we've talked before about power centers uh, and, uh, and and how there could be fringe-aware groups out on the fringe paths who begun, begin to take large sections of the fringe paths as their personal domain, much like IDET has done, even though they, they, they try to make it all warm and fuzzy. Okay, uh, but the uh, but the Coptics are uh, a group that has done similarly. Okay, and then finally, uh, there is a uh, major scenario which involves the next step, possibly of the fringe pass, because uh, there are some events with the Tamelern. The Tamelern are back; uh, they are doing something, uh, and. It's uh, not really clear. Uh, I mean, they're, they're doing a lot of strange things, of course, which is what Tamelron do. But at the end result of it is, is that you as a player, you as a GM, get to make a major decision as to how you want your campaign to go. Uh, there are, you know, uh, there is a choice at the end of the scenario which can radically change your campaign if you so choose. And if you don't, that's fine. Uh, there's, you know, there's plenty, There's two alternatives with that. So, um, anyways, uh, I'm not quite sure how much we want to give away here, Richard, um, as far as describing it. But uh, let's. Uh, uh, do you want to talk about the Arachno or, or not? The Arkino. Ar- oh, is that how it's pronounced? Arkino. Arkino. Okay. Yep. Uh, the Arkino are the second race on the Tazeel homeworld, or as you thought, they were just the the great lizards, or as, as somebody once called them, the the Japanese cultured lizards. They discover by accident there is a second race there, and that are the Tazeel do not talk about at all. And uh, turns out they had they have been around for a very very long time. And they were involved with Tremelorn, working on a final project that completely went to hell on them in the 1500s. They were getting ready to clear the Mellor off the pathways and change everything, and it didn't happen. And this was 500 years after uh, the war started, because it's been supposedly the war has been over for uh, 500 years. 500 plus years. Well, that's 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 our timeline. Said about a thousand years ago, that's when these bad things happened, uh, where the Commonwealth fell. So this is like the midpoint between uh, then and now. Well, the Commonwealth never actually totally fell. The Commonwealth basically was shut uh, shut the Tremelorin off, and the Tremelorin in turn, because it turns out. There were two ma- there were Commonwealth Tremelorn, which were much closer to human beings. And there were Tremelorn Tremelorn, which were incredibly intelligent and had slightly different motivations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about how Schmert is, is actually a Commonwealth Tremelorn, not a Tremelorn Tremelorn. And the, the Commonwealth has been going on for quite some time. And there, there was no solution. They did not have a solution to the Meller, except they were a little more, oh, let's say, a little more uh, 
tougher than the Shemoran were once the Melwars showed up. That's partially why they, they shut they shut the Commonwealth from the Shemoran. Basically, the, 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 you're saying that the Tamerlan came up with a final solution. Yes, which sounds really bad, by the way, because the last final solution we've heard about you know, involved genocide. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah. actually, I, I like the solution they came up with because it's, I've actually suggested before that this is actually a, a viable, based on how the portals work, it's an entirely, uh, an entirely viable solution to the problem. You know, so yeah, I actually I like the solution because it's. It, 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 I don't want. I don't don't want to do any spoilers, but yeah, it's 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 it's. I think it's a good a, a good solution that basically makes use of the fact that they had that they are masters of the portals. Trav, were, were you involved in this in any way? Uh, yeah, Rich asked me to do some historical research on the Coptics, and what he asked me was. At what point did history diverge to create this alternate Earth? And Wikipedia and I got real close during that time because I had to research. It was around the time of Mark Antony, Caesar, Cleopatra there, where Rome and Egypt were both in power. And it's essentially the pivotal event that changed the Coptic timeline. Mark Antony actually got to warn Caesar, don't go to the Senate floor, Brutus is there with a knife. Once Caesar knew that he was going to get, you know, that that stabbing was going to happen, things changed. There were two battles that Mark Antony did not fight in, one of them which was the Battle of Philippi, and I'm blanking now on the other one. But, yeah, Mark Antony and Cleopatra were together, but... There was a little side action with Caesar. Well, in our history, Rome absorbed Egypt. No, no, no. In this timeline, Rome and Egypt were equal, and they merged into the empire that later became the Rumi, or as we know them, the Coptics. By the way, that's spelled R-W-M-E. And so Rome and Egypt, they basically had the known world. Except the Chinese. Well, yeah, well, the known world to them, pretty much everywhere that they touched, that mega empire was master. Outside of southern Africa, you basically had two empires. You had the Roman uh, Egyptian Empire and you had the Qin, which were the, uh, the Chinese. Well, you also had people far north, the Huns, and then you also had some in Ethiopia. And so how they found out about them was that this the Rumi were exploring the Taurus Mountains in southern Turkey. And in a cave, they found a fringe portal where they started going to various places and they found that the Chinese, the Huns, and the Ethiopians, they didn't have a lot of fringe-worthy, but they protected those portals. Now, Rich and I figured out where the other four portals on that prime went. They weren't talked about. I mean, see, we talked about the Coptics in Portals 3 a little bit. Well, in Portals 4, uh, from my reading, uh, what happened was is that they discovered these things, but they kept it a secret. 
And it was only in modern days when the ASA went through that they became that they became globally aware of the existence of the portals. And that's when the Coptic Empire spilled out onto the fringe pass. That they actually hadn't been on the fringe pass very long. Catalia Valley, a desert hold, a staging ground on the steppes of Rus, the Petra Valley, Great Cathedral. And three that are high pressure, they go into high pressure areas. Right. Which probably means they're underwater. Yeah. The Catalia Valley, where is that, Rich? Um, don't make me go to the computer. Oh. <laughs> Well, let's see, a desert hold, well, that could be Ethiopia. Steps of Rus, okay. Petra Valley, Great Cathedral, that's Rome. That, we, we got that. That's... Well, one of them is, is actually the equivalent of the, um, the one that's out in the sand. The Rabina area. So that's the desert hold? Four fortress towers in a large training area? Yep. So what we have in the book is we have uh, them the background of how they got out there and how they were exploring and they were starting to uh, take over various sections. Uh, it's said in here at one point that they were they were hiring the fringe pirates and using them as scouts for their uh, expansion. Yes. Now, they're really, really far out, though. So the question is, uh, like, they're like 140-something. So that doesn't mean that necessarily that the fringe pirates that are around Earth Prime are working for the Coptics. It just means that the that when you run into fringe pirates out around negative 140, then they could very well be working for the Coptics. If any of you remember in Portals 2, negative 124 Prime, the Metro Ambush World, where... Pittsburgh Airport, French pirates come in, shoot up everything, and then leave. Guess who those French pirates were working for? It's it, it it's in here, and I just and when I read it, I was like, because I've used negative one twenty four in one of my previous campaigns. That attack was the 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 the, the flashpoint to get the campaign going, and I'm just reading that. And I'm like, oh, you know, so. Yeah, that was a shock to me. Remember, folks, I've been working with this group for 10 years, and I'm still finding out new stuff all the time. So it's, uh, so it basically chronicles some of the major points of their exploration. Uh, I, a lot of the information you were just talking about, Trev, I don't remember reading in Portals 4. So there may be this, this you have some background that didn't actually make it into the book, ah, well. uh, which is good because we still have to do an episode on the Coptics. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You can really expand on that. One of the things that Richard does is he picks a, cu- uh, a couple of people that are usually fringeworthy explorers and use them as the, the, the voice to illuminate what's going on. And we have um, a, well, basically we have a, uh, a pair of people, a squad, but really, well, there's actually three as a turn, uh, ultimately. Uh, there is a woman who, uh, now I'm going to ask you, Richard, uh, did you intentionally make her unattractive? No, we actually um, Melody created her. Okay, because she's she's the most she's one of the most mannish women I've seen in a long time. Oh, well, it's you've probably seen her on TV for thirty years. 
Okay. In general, the line of her face, everything else. And she's an ornithologist, an expert on birds, which ties in very well with the story about uh, the the uh, Ar- Because of that, she seems to find herself exploring a lot because she's constantly looking for birds that she's never seen before, and she finds out information that apparently uh, normally wouldn't be discovered because the IDET team that she's on is a kind of a strong militaristic bent and they tend to stay close to camp and pretty much just, you know, move around, you know, uh, in in Japanese group step. And they don't do a whole lot of uh, running off into the ruins and checking here and talking to the natives, Uh, but she does. So she ends up generating a lot of... uh, uh, a, well, a lot of it adventure seeds, um, and which, of course, the, the, the book's about. And uh, we have, uh, here at the tri Tech Games podcast, have been arguing for years and years that, uh, that that kind of exploration is essential to a good, fringe-worthy game, and usually most RPGs, that if you don't talk to anybody... If you just go after the main quest line, you miss all the uh, flavor and all the emergent play that comes out of people, you know, interacting with the NPCs in the setting that you're playing in. So she does that, and that's a good thing. And uh, but then we have this other guy who's like Waylon. He's the uh, like. Way, uh, are we talking about the the long term military guy? Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the ultimate uh, trainer. The, uh... Yeah, because he reminds me an awful lot of actually, uh, and, and I, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense in any way, he reminds me of George, uh, of George Custer because he was uh, a, a general, but he wanted to stay in the military, so he, uh, I think he took the rank of colonel to re-enlist as um, uh, one of the horse soldiers. Isn't that right? And he, 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 was, he was also quite an explorer. Right. So this guy here, uh, Wayland, he, you know, he's a retired drill sergeant, but he becomes something else, I think a, lo- a lower rank, when he uh, joins up uh, with, uh, in the IDET team. So he can basically boss these people around. Uh, and they do give them ranks, which I thought was interesting, because um, in, mo- in my games, at least, uh, we rarely ever did ranks as far as the team members were concerned uh, their home country might give them a rank like they uh, did with uh, uh, Lai, who uh, was given a, was a colonel rank yeah colonel yeah somebody who had never been in the military ever is given a colonel rank by the, the people's republic <laughs> because they, did, they wanted her to be the highest ranking mil, uh, person on the team I'm looking at his picture, Richard. He looks a bit like a darker-skinned Bruce Willis. Yeah, that's what I'm getting. I'm getting that vibe, too. <laughs> yes, he does. I was, like, saying, who does he look like? He's so familiar. And she and she looks like Jane Hathaway out of the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just give her more hair. Nancy and... Colt. Nancy Colt. Yes, okay. yeah. The, uh, that's the best descriptions I've I've heard. Uh, there's other stars that look like them, which is funny. But uh, when I saw them, I I said, yeah, these are beautiful. These are exactly the characters I would have imagined. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And for those you're gonna look up Nancy Culp, it's Culp with a K. Yeah. 
Or just look up Beverly Hillbillies. Right. Yeah, that too, yeah. The series, they'll, not they'll, the movie. They'll, they'll never get past Donna, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ellie May. Uh, yeah. Ellie May, yeah. They'll get past Ellie May, Donna Douglas. Yeah. What are you talking about? Oh, if you just look at Bill Hillary, the first thing you'll see is is, is Ellie May clamp it, and that's it. Forget it. You're never going to see anything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, she was a very pretty girl, but she wasn't so pretty as to make me illiterate, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's some that's some serious beauty there. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so so and then we had the third member of the team, who's the quote lucky guy. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, he, and he's basically the the GM's hammer, essentially. He's the guy that that uh, lucks into stuff. Uh, usually, he gets the luck he needs, not the luck he wants. Well, he reads a bit like a prone. That is, and it, th- this is an old trope where people who are accident prone, but there's two kinds. They're 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 personally accident prone, or they cause accidents to happen around them. And he sounds like he's like the latter. That yeah, yes, he's lucky. He's the only one that doesn't happen to. <laughs> well, here uh, I, and I know what you're saying is that you know he, it's like he sucks all the luck from everybody else, so he survives the bad thing that happens, and everybody else, you know, uh, gets hurt. Uh, but but it also uh, a lot of times think because he comes back, uh, IDEC gets information that they otherwise wouldn't get. Uh, the person that he reminds me the most of is the main character in the television series Strange Luck. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. I never saw that. It was only on for a season. It was on Fox. I remember it vaguely. I think it was D.B. Sweeney that played the role. It was D.B. Sweeney. Yes, I remember it. I think his, even name, his name was even uh, Chance. Yes, Chance Harper. He'd get his wallet taken from him. But then he'd pick up a lottery ticket, win ten bucks, and be able to buy dinner for the night. He just had that weird kind of back and forth luck about him. Yeah, he he did that on a consistent basis. He'd walk into the uh, the restaurant where they, apparently they also sold uh, tickets, or he bought them right outside. He'd buy three tickets and he'd scratch them off, and one of them would hit high enough to pay for his bill and a, hef- a hefty tip for the waitress. Yeah. And so, so he never worried about money or anything like that. The one thing he did say that he never pushed his luck because he, he felt if he ever tried to rely on it, then it would fail him. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, but it was always there, and it wasn't just him. It was His father also had that kind of luck. And, and of course, that's a spoiler for the show because originally everybody thinks that he's, a, a, he's presented as an orphan. And later on, we find out that his father is still alive. Um, and uh, he was the only survivor of a plane that went down, killing hundreds of people, and he got out of it without a scratch. He's this little boy that goes wandering out of the wreckage with flames everywhere, crying because he's, he's understandably upset. Yeah, and that's how that's the backstory on the show. And now he's a uh, photo. Wait, I'm not, he's not actually a photojournalist. He's really just a photographer. He works for the newspaper. Ah. Which places him at, you know, scenes where interesting things happen, uh, and that's how the the thing goes along until they start delving into the backstory of why is he so lucky, or you know, what does this mean? Is this is there actually a deeper meaning to who he is and his his fate in life? But that's a show. That's not a show. That's not uh, Portals Four. So, but anyways, we have this guy 
who is like him. He's uh, very lucky, and and I'm saying the GM can you will be really tempted to use him to uh, do all kinds of things. And I'm not sure that you want a player character to play him because of that. Hmm. Okay, I'm yeah. looking at a picture of Wilson here, Hamden, Lucky Wilson. I'm getting a bit of a vibe, and the youngins will know this show. Hair's a little short on the side, but I'm getting a bit of a Dean Winchester vibe off this picture. Not Jensen Eccles, I forget the guy, he plays Sam, the other actor who plays Dean Winchester. I'm getting the that's, vibe of that's that. That's Sam Winchester. Sam, Sam, Winch- Sam Winchester's the tall one. Dean is the um, is the one that was uh, also in Dark Angel. Okay. He's the taller one. Sam is the taller. Okay. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. Dean Winchester. I'm getting a vibe off him with uh, Lucky's picture here. What picture? Are you, what page are you looking at? Uh, page eighteen. 20, 26 uh, real On page. The PDF eighteen. I am not lucky. I am. I'm at. I'm just at the right spot at the right time. It's like I have a guardian angel. Yeah, that's that's not very close to Dean. <laughs> um, he actually looks an awful lot more like uh, uh, the guy who's playing uh, uh, playing the penguin on Gotham. Uh, I might. Uh. I don't watch Gotham. I might have seen the guy in a trailer for it a little. Yeah, okay. But what I'm saying is is that um, sometimes people, you know, you look at this and say, hey, these would be great characters to play. And that's a tribute to Richard uh, that he writes interesting characters. But this particular guy, um, he does, to me, I don't think he would be a good character because he would be such a tool for the GM that, the, that whoever played this character would probably feel like they're they were being railroaded. Yeah. Okay. And um, now there's a, uh, instead um, I would direct you toward um, uh, some some descriptions people have had for write ups of this show. Burn Notice, the character played by Bruce Campbell. Okay. His yeah. character, um, the, he, he gets he has contacts, and usually what happens is that he more often than not presents the plot. To the rest of the of the thing, he you know whenever they need something, he he gets it okay, and so it's kind of an aspect of his character that he does this. It's not something he can rely on. It's something more advantageous for the GM. He's the way that the the GM brings stuff in. So his character, if you do play him as a as a NPC, he doesn't have. He doesn't have access to these kinds of things. It's just something the GM does, and he gets to do everything else. So, if if this particular character, his luck, you know, uh, might caught, you might say, okay, this thing happened off camera. You wouldn't want to use this during an actual like combat, for example, where things like that happen. Unless, of course, you 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 do very uh, heroic type stuff, like in Savage Worlds with a lot of bennies. Uh, then you might be able to, because then everybody else would be able to be lucky at the same time. But you don't want to have just one character who's only lucky. Well, yeah, luck in Sarah's Worlds is different. It means you actually get more bennies to spend. He's more along the line of he gets, he gets, he, if he was a character, he, he, he can spend a benny to dictate a plot element type thing. 
Right. Well, well, John, you know, let's let's not be tied down by the fact that there's a perk called luck. I'm just I'm just looking at this guy saying he's the guy when you guys pull to the platform and stop for a second and you know do a lunch break. He goes for a walk, walks behind the walks behind the big fifty foot transit portal, and finds the dead body. It's just kind of a, a, a thing for him, and uh, which is very useful. And, and as this thing goes on, as he describes some of the things that happen, it is in fact you know this, uh, a, uh, some of the drama is driven by some of his inadvertent discoveries. Now, you know, I would say that um, uh, our ornithologist probably makes just as many uh, lucky discoveries as he does, but it's usually as a result of her pluck. Uh, and, and I know there's a joke there. <laughs> uh, the fact that she, she doesn't ask permission, she just goes and does things until someone stops her. Okay. Well, she, she, she's a stereotypical you know, um, scientist who's always out looking for something, always out researching, always thinking, we can talk to the alien that just ate the crew member. I'm not sure she's a scientist. <laughs> she's more of a, um, uh, I consider her as just some, someone who has a, a, she's like a fan more than anything else. Uh, Ornithology yeah. is a hobby for her. She was yeah. working oh, she, in a bank and then. Yeah, she, she does, she does accounting. Yeah. yeah. Big time accounting, by the way. Turn federal evidence against her employers. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so we have a character who had to go out on the fringe pass for her own safety. Yeah, you know, poor put upon. You know, uh, a drill sergeant has to watch over this ragtag, you know, fugitive and fleet-footed uh, fellow. And they don't really talk about any of the other characters, but there are actually other members of the team who mostly are—I would just call them red shirts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. bad things happen to them. I have to do this because I just see the perfect quote for the, for for Waylon. The one world that really got on my nerves was the Great Frog Swamp. This world deserves to be a punishment zone for for the IDA. If it doesn't chirp, creak, or belch, it cuts loose with a thundering gastric noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I can see him, you know, just just sitting off to the side, going, "God Almighty, what's up now, Lucky?" <laughs> uh, and if you also read and look at the way it's set up, it's also a matter of respect. Little bit by little bit, mm-hmm. he gains more and more respect for yep. her as she gains yep. respect for him. Yep. In fact, there's toward the end there, we can probably ship these two, can't we? <laughs> well, the fact that she picks up the uh, one of the highest ranking Coptic uh, princes mm-hmm. by accident and begins to civilize him. You sure Lucky wasn't involved with that again? <laughs> that's well. That's 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 because Lucky was there, and what happened? Yeah, that's true. But you are also playing on the uh, uh, the the motherless uh the childless mother and the lost child trope there richard oh yeah. absolutely these two people basically you know connected with each other and uh she you know he he glommed onto her and she was like okay that's fine 
and, uh, and, and basically pulled a Ripley on us. Well, they had to form an understanding because on page 23 with Etta's ledger, it wasn't exactly, a, oh, mom, oh, son, no, no, no. It was anything but. <laughs> she had to sort of set some ground rules for this boy. <laughs> Who has never had a ground rule in his life. Oh, she caught him up to speed nicely. <laughs> I read that. I was like, dang. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, now, I'm not sure how, because considering the, reli- the religion he's brought up in, and he's also a prince, I'm thinking that his, he actually has plenty of ground rules, but they don't apply to the plebes, to the normal people. Now, if his father is around, oh, you better believe he probably, he probably stands up straight and doesn't talk back. But when he's with the lower class, that's when he doesn't have any ground rules. This Portals 4 actually chronicles a period of uh, over 10 years, uh, this story having to do with this team and, the, and their interactions with the, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Coptics. Uh, so this little boy actually turns into a young man by the end, and, and, it's, and it's, it's linchpin to the importance of the uh, final resolution of the Coptics. At least, or I shouldn't say the final resolution, but the beginning of a resolution with the Coptics. Now, Richard, there's this thread that I could not find, no matter how much I read. I'm reading on just on page uh, 24. Uh, He would only deal with with Edda Abernathy. For the first time since the death of his assassinated mother, he began to trust a member of the enemy. And then there was the slarg. I can never find that slarg. What slarg? Mm. Not done yet. <laughs> ah. Ah. But speaking of something over in the uh, side thing, uh, I'd like to digress here and talk about these IDA mandates that you decide to slip in here <laughs> on a couple of pages. Okay, the first one I thought was very interesting was the no contact says, the IDA's mission is not to start armed conflicts. Earth has had its own share of injustice across history. We learn from the Tamelar and what a society could accomplish. We lock off worlds that are not our business. So, uh, now, I've always asserted that the first thing that Earth Prime would do would be anybody that they didn't want to have contact with, or, or they were not developing that world for contact, they would immediately shut off the world. They would lock it down, their portals, okay, and then therefore only turn them back on when they were, somebody was ready to go and do more work with that world. This served a couple of useful purposes. One was that it, uh, it would prevent the ASA in a lot of cases from being able to access the world. Secondly, it kept the fringe pirates from being able to plunder those worlds. Uh, and third, uh, it's uh, you know it, it, you you had you contro- allowed the I, uh, the IDA to control the space in, in which they were exploring. They didn't have to worry about somebody wandering you know wandering out of the uh, a portal behind them and uh, and doing something. Uh, uh, when people came through the portal, it was almost always when uh, the IDA either it already happened, or they uh, and they met them, or they would go through and find them and bring them out and say, "Hey, here's this whole new world." But it was all a huge matter of control. 
So when I see this, this is like one of the reasons that they shut down the portals, but not the only one. Is that right, Richard? Yes, there's it actually is. An er- yeah, there's an earlier one. Uh, here it is. Uh, earlier, no contact mandate uh, sidebar. When a, when an IDA team posts a no contact no contact, the portal will be locked and later a and later followed up by an expert team for reevaluation. Some of these portals become permanently locked off as a, as the societies are deserving protection or potentially toxic to human norms. So it's either we, we either don't want to, you know, prime directive, don't interfere, or, oh, yeah, we don't want anything to do with these, uh, you know, efforts and lock them off. <laughs> I, I'm not too sure I'm real happy about that because of the fact that considering the people that are in the uh, alien core, we're talking about some serious social deviance from Earth prime norms. So I just wonder... You know, uh, so when they talk about a, a culture that's toxic to um, the IDA, I, I'm really wondering about how bad it would have to be in order for them to follow that designation. I think this really comes into more of the, the situation of they're busy doing stuff and we can't actually talk to them right now because they're in the middle of a war and they're going to want to dr- bring us in to get involved in their war. And we're not. And if we say no, then they're going to attack our team members. So we're just going to st- shut shut down the portal and stay away for a while and, and let things shake out and we'll and we'll come back and talk to the survivors yeah I, and there were, there was one world in particular that uh, that very early on when ed powers went into it that they found that there were priests hurting four year olds down an alley and they were very amused over it and thinking this was a good thing until they saw they were hurting them into a butcher shop oh <laughs> Yeah. Oh, t- yeah. Time the pull machine got out and take care of those priests. Unfortunately, the kids would then object. And they did. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, then the kids would then object because it's saying, well, this is what we're supposed to do. You no, know? the four year olds weren't quite there. Well, especially if you came out of an Aztec culture where uh, being, being killed for as, as a sacrifice to your god was considered a good thing. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or at least a necessary thing. Though I will have to say, there's always been a little controversy about the Aztec uh, ball games where they would play their version of Mesoamerican ball. Um, it's always been debated whether or not it was the winners or the losers who got sacrificed at the end. Uh, yeah. Whether you're playing, to, where you're playing to be sacrificed or you're wearing the, you're playing not to be sacrificed. Uh, I've I yet to find a good. I find opinions on both sides of that one. So it's kind of an ultimate form of coin toss where you get to choose whether you receive or whether you give. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's all right. Okay, so that was one of them. Okay, then there's another one. Oh, the yellow box? Yes, the yellow box. <laughs> okay. I mean, okay, Richard, you know, you, you seem like such a nice guy, but why is it that you love to put explosives in everything? <laughs> <laughs> Says the man who uses fuel air bombs. That, that make <laughs> Only because uh, Richard made nukes not work. That's all. <laughs> uh, now, here's the thing, Richard, though, I, and I have to get you on this one. Neither the dynamite nor the C six would go off if it's shot. Why not? Shh. Why wouldn't the dynamite go off? Dynamite requires a, a, a high. It requires a very sharp p- 
pinpoint impact to go off. You don't think a bullet would do that? Nope, because they did it. Not new dynamite, but old dynamite, yes. Yeah, but old dynamite is sweating nitroglycerin. I wouldn't want to put it on my truck if it's that case. <laughs> it blew up to, is it a blow up going over a bump? <sighs> how about de- how about debt cord? Does debt cord detonate when you hit it? Nope. No, you would need something. You you you. Would, uh, the only way I can I can I can justify this is that you have something in the box itself that. A bullet impact will cause it to detonate, and then that then hits a debt cord, and then takes care of the rest of it. Well, that was what I was thinking here. Is that the big qu- the big question is is when he fires this um, at the crate, is he doing it as an act of desperation, or is he doing it because he, he know the odds are pretty good that this thing is going to blow up the way he wants it to? Richard, what was your intent? Well. We will correct it and make it a little more clear on the next time we reissue it. <laughs> but what was your intent? Everybody assumes that explosives go up. That if you shoot a an explosive, it'll explode. Well, no, it doesn't. But sometimes you have to game. Yeah, cinema. They see it on. They see it in the movies. Well, yeah, and in the movies, everything explodes so easily. You can take your average plastic explosive, set it on fire, and it burns just fine. But you, it will, it will not explode if you stamp it out. It'll just keep. It'll just go out. And everybody's a can of hairspray can can become a blowtorch so that'll burn someone's face off. No, but would it could yep. do some 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 at least some minor at least two degree burns in someone's face, or if you get their hair, their hair burn- catches on fire. Okay, you can burn nitroglycerin. Yes. And, and, and according to MacGyver, that if you shake, shake flour into a room, you can blow the entire building up. Yes, you can. Yeah, they've blown it. We well, had grain have, silos that detonated and they actually launched themselves like rockets. Uh, but in that case, Richard, it was endemic through the entire building. If it's just one room, you, you, you more or less you'll pull the windows out and probably pop the doors, and that's about it. Right. Well, this is why I mentioned MacGyver. Grain silos were big rooms. Yeah. I mean, MacGyver was always, you know, he always seemed to be able to do an awful lot with that uh, roll of duct tape. <laughs> and he seemed to be able to do it really quickly, too. Oh yeah, but it's but it's great theater, and that's why it's here. And there's no, and I, I myself have no problem with having great theater in a role playing game, just as long as everybody's on board, and the fact and that you play fair and let the bad guys or the the antagonists, because they don't necessarily have to be bad guys. Everybody's a hero in their own mind, right? Um, yeah. The uh, the antagonist gets fair play with that too. If you're being shot at by by the pirates and you have that wagon turned around facing them, it's your own fault if they get shot. <laughs> well, in, in, in as, as an example, at one point in um, uh, when we had the Battle of Hatsumi Base, uh, where you know which, which involved the in my particular campaign involved the the pe- the, the IDET explorers who weren't at Hatsumi Base when the pirates were attacking, plus their helpers, which were the um, uh, uh, the Victorians, they built themselves a rocket-powered, uh, uh, well, it was, a, it was the coal, it, it was the coal tender on the back of one of their trains, 
and when the pirates came by, they literally launched the coal tender right across the platform, smashed into the, uh, the, the, the big pirate vehicle that they were using to bombard uh, Ida, uh, Hatsumi Base and shove it off the platform and off into the uh, matter energy conversion area. So uh, you know, that was some pretty good aim is what I'm trying to say. However, Bruce, however, Bruce, that doesn't work anymore. Yes, it does. Because in here, no, no, Richard, what, what, yeah. when you shoot, shoot a bullet through, through a portal, what happens to it? It vaporizes and reflects back. Or it accelerates. So it doesn't work anymore. Richard, Richard changed it. Or it's an explosive shell. It goes through, drops to the ground on the other side, and explodes, causing massive overpressure and doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah, but then you just got to step back far enough and have barricades, and then you just wait them out until you run out of ammo. As if they knew this was coming. You know, after you clear out the, the area immediately around the base, then you can roll through with your, your vehicle and then continue to shell with your vehicle on the other side of the portal. Yeah, but that means the standard process of firing can shows through. I understand what you're saying, John. I understand what you're saying. And I happen to know that that was not the case 20 years ago, but that's how Richard wants it now. And um, I say, GMs, uh, you decide. Yep. <laughs> yep, yep. I'm going to put Melody Natcher on the phone, uh, oh. who, create, who created the art for a lot of the, a lot of the book. And I'll be back in just about three minutes. Hello. Hey, Hi, Melody. So, Melody, uh, Richard says that uh, you did most of the art in the book that isn't like a photograph. The graphics, at least. Well, okay. Where did you get the images for the, uh, the exploration team? I did them. I basically uh, used an online photo program and then i modified it heavily oh what was it like one of those uh um, um oh, please sketch type programs where you can build a face or yes yes ah. and then That's i modified nice. it heavily mm-hmm. now hoover is that one of yours when your cats oh you're talking about the one in the book that yeah. was just something Richard came up with, and I and I uh, did the picture for him. Oh, but you, you didn't get one of your cats to pose for it, though, did you? No, I didn't. So, Melody, the picture of the Coptics on page 26 of the Portals 4 book, was that one of yours? Picture hmm. of the Coptics. You know, I don't have the book in front of me. Well, we got one guy who, you know, basically is wearing a, like I say, a diaper, and he's got like a a, a torque around his neck, and he's holding a uh, something similar to an AK-47, and he's got this guy wearing what looks to be like Roman armor behind him with a whip, and I just wondered if that was um... for portals two. I'm sorry, portals two. Now, of course, we've got a lot of information on these particular characters about the Coptics, and we're not going to go deeply into that because we still have Trav's little experience, uh, you know, his, his Coptic uh, expansion, and, you know, everything you wanted to know about the Coptics, and we need to schedule that soon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, 
<laughs> Usual quote, submit or die, slave. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so much fun at a party. <laughs> oh, we still got one more. We got, still got another IDA mandate to talk about. Uh, which one was that? Feeding. On uh, real page 56. If it follows you, don't feed it. See slargs, broops, and panko data. <laughs> but, you know, slargs, not, slargs will not follow you. They'll go, ah, thanks for the meal. Bye, sucker. And go. But, uh... Well, and the pangos, you want the pangos. They're the, uh, they're, you know, the only uh, uh, detector we had of the Meller. Yeah. That didn't involve on some uh, very uh, high-tech... Um, analysis device, you know, that would, you know, like have a drone and fly over and and uh, take a skin sample and say, oh, it's got a lot of sugar in it, <laughs> or something, you know. Uh, so the pangos, the pangos were, uh, I thought, you know, now they were inspired by you, Melody, right? No, Melody's Melody's gone to sleep. Uh, all right, well then, uh, but that the the pangos were were uh, the pangos inspired by Melody, yes, by Melody, right. And they were very helpful. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, any time that you run into a creature that's that helpful, then it's usually, uh, uh, I, I usually consider them to be bioengineered. Because real things, you know, they have their own agendas that usually keep them from being terribly helpful. Cats, I yeah. Say, um. I, I, I will say Broops will know if you're taken already. You know, like edit, edit, edit. I said at this point, the later half of the book, she's taken already. She, she she's already got a tree. So if she met a group, it wouldn't want to do anything to do with her because she's taken, and it knows uh, it. <laughs> how do they? How do they know it, John? The same way other cats know you have a cat, you get marked. <laughs> so you're saying that when she uh, she stays in the tree house and the tree uh, uh, basically basically says your home then yeah. it somehow uh marks her yeah, yeah so i would Mark. say like a psychic tag well it could just be a pollen thing you know yeah <laughs> i mean she 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 leaves it going oh there's a soul sign on this tree i guess i own it now she just knows it now <laughs> right well, think about it this way. She's sleeping in the tree, okay? The tree has the ability to manufacture all kinds of things, including uh, complex molecules that do, do not easily degrade, okay? She's breathing it. It's going into her lungs. It's coating her nose. It's getting into her sinuses, into her eyes. So even after washing herself and showering and things like that, just like, uh, well, it, it just... Just like garlic can rot, can come out of your lungs if you eat a lot of it, so these these molecules and it only for some a creature that is very highly sensitive to things like this, it would only take a very few molecules to say, "Oh, I recognize that." So uh, probably it's some kind of uh, a chemical marker that is that she's actually ingested or breathed and it's somehow in her body and only slowly after many months would it uh, fade away to the point where a, a brute would not know that she was taken. Well, not necessarily. If it's, if it's sort of like, well, um, especially, especially form of uh, gut bacteria, uh, it might just simply set residence and it never leaves at that point. It stays there. You know, and every time she burps, they, the groups know she's taken. 
Okay, well, I, would, I hadn't thought about it being a modified gut bacteria. All right. Neither had I. But yes, um, feeding things. That's, that's a bad thing? I thought feeding was one of the like linchpin things of getting people to like you. I mean, you go to an alien world, the first thing you do is feed the natives, right? Yeah. You break out the, you break out the John Wayne bars and hand them out. <laughs> you, break out, you break out the bucket of milk, you hand it to the scralings, and then they get lactose, and they're lactose intolerant, and then they kill you. Oh. <laughs> These things happen. It's not, it's not a perfect system, Richard. Yeah, uh, it's yours. Careful. As a matter of fact, so it's definitely not perfect. Yeah, and be careful who you hand socks to. Oh, Dobby has a sock. <laughs> yes, I am now free of my imprinting. I could be the. Do- hey, speaking of that, okay, uh, I noticed that the um, uh, you, you mentioned just briefly uh, in this about um, the the bird people. Uh, not the not not the uh, Akina, but the other ones. The Kigak. You mentioned the Kigak in passing, but you know, we we've we've basically stated that they're responsible for you know the the failure of the Slargs as well as the failure of uh, the Meller cure originally, when the Commonwealth that remained finally discovered that they had done these things, they destroy their planet. So uh, I, I believe there was some, some key gack involved in the, uh, the second scenario. So do, do I, we assume that the key gack world was destroyed after 500 years ago? Um, or about that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. But, from, but based on the scenario though, okay, but, the Tamilan picked up when the Tamilan homeworld. Um, the the thing that happened to it happened a thousand years ago, didn't it? To T Prime, not quite. Okay. Well, I mean, it it happened fast, Richard. Just remember, yeah. Just, you know, I mean, you know, because they were they were using the big system to try to throw stuff. You know, they were they were they, uh, they were. Well, you know, they were they were going to uh, infiltrating the uh, their world. They were also trying to throw you know large boulders, including other planets, at prime worlds. So, and I'm glad that you uh, fi- uh, uh, made uh, wrote down the rules about. Well, uh, you didn't actually tell you how it happened. You just mentioned the fact that it it does happen that you can um, rotate the primes. The alternates can become primes. So uh, that was something we mentioned on a previous podcast, and it is written about uh, to considerable length. It's one of those things where I know it's very hard for GMs to go and release information, so-called secrets of the fringe paths, uh, to their players. Uh, it's, it's really hard to work it into the actual game scenario. And if you can manage it, it's really, really great. But you know, there's a lot of information that we've talked about, like this, like the fringe trains, which you renamed as um, the shuttles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're smaller than I thought. I mean, I thought they were like a hundred feet long, and these, the, the ones you have shown here, are, are I think are considerably smaller. They were engineers' vehicles. Yeah. So, because I know that, uh, for example, uh, James Buchanan always thought that there were these immense, you know, um, 
Well, I, 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 I'm sure he would believe a thousand mile long train systems that were running up and down the pathways. Uh, but that was back before we talked about there being a big system rather than just the fringe pass. Now, I've always imagined them being as big as you need them. That they basically they're manufactured as needed, and then when they're not needed anymore, they go away. But the, what you stated in, in the uh, Portals 4 is that, in fact, there's only a few of them. Uh, and as a result of that, it makes perfect sense that uh, a, a train may not always show up when you use the, 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 call, uh, the crystals to call them. Yep. Or it may take change, time. change the color of the crystals that you would use to call a fringe train? One's black. Uh, Always been no. black. One's always been black. No, we said any two. Uh, any John. two. Yeah, any two. Oh, any two. But it, it was useful to use a black one because those were uh, the least. They were considered the least useful of the crystals. Mm-hmm. You could even use an orange crystal, an orange engineering crystal. I always thought it was orange and blue. But uh, it was one of those things where you just don't normally would think about using one, <laughs> and. Uh, and, and usually where you, you know, it wasn't very helpful in a dire situation because here you are running down the fringe pass with, a, with a, uh, the fringe pirates hot on your heels and you got the thing spinning. Yep. <laughs> and, and you're like trying to, ho- hoping that the fringe train will show up and you could jump into it and get away from the pirates, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, and, that, and this is on page, uh, real page 7363 on the printed page. Uh, is the fr- is the shuttle pathway shuttle, and and it's uh, it, you need an orange crystal to run the controls, but you actually don't the say how the co- you don't say how you call it at least not on this page. No, it says later on. It mentions it later on. Okay, but of course another IDA mandate: don't touch the Tamerlan have. Uh, have quarantine. I'm sorry, quarantine. They used their show system by explaining that they could be used by the great and master Miller. The system was locked down with only a, a handful of these vehicles available. The control systems are complex. They require a full understanding of Tamelan linear 54 to operate safely. But I thought Tamelan ship Tamelan stuff automatically translated. Um, you well, you can depending on which one it is. Oh. Which, which show you're on? So some shows which, won't translate? We're only showing one Tremelling language translated. Actually, it's, a, it's also a font. I think it's free off TriTech. Oh. But, uh, it's available on TriTech in the free download section. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, but yeah, look at yeah, Okay, so there's no place to park my truck in the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's multiple levels, but this, yeah, I mean, remember, you know, as as you were saying, Trav, um, they or was it you, John? They, um, I mean, there's no reason why those seats couldn't just disappear into the floor and you have a big wide open space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if this is a hundred, well, actually, uh, it's it's it says it's a hundred feet long. If this thing's a hundred feet long, then that door on the side is at least ten foot wide, and a vehicle that's eight foot wide could drive into it. Yeah, it's a decent D and D door, ten foot wide. Yeah, <laughs> double d- double door, ten foot wide, five feet on each side. Because I don't know about you, but pull, pulling and cl- pushing and closing those ten foot wide doors that are one door—that's you know, they, they, yeah, those are really tough. 
And remember, they weren't made out of planks. They were made out of, you know, square four-inch logs, you know, so they're four inches thick. I mean, those things weighed a ton each. <laughs> okay. Are we talking still talking doors here or what? Yeah, 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 yeah. D&D doors. Yeah, they're supposed to be three inches thick. Yeah, okay. So that's still a ton. It's still a ton. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, a tree falls down, you say, you look at it, you say, you know, that can't be that heavy until you actually try to do something with it. Or you fill a, a large box with books and you realize books are wood pulp. So what I have here, the equivalent is a cord of wood in a little box. Ah! <laughs> Believe me, I, I understand that. Uh, every time I moved, I discover how heavy my library is. Uh, no, I made a mistake of buying one of these big plastic bins. It's um, it's full of books. It's sitting where I filled it because I can't move the dang thing. It weighs it weighs two hundred pounds. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, that's that sounds about right. This is Bruce Sheffer saying. There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait, you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.